Good morning, my name is Nick Anders, and today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This passage begins on page 1156 in the Bibles beneath the seat in front of you. Beginning in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. In recent days, we've been studying the book of Ephesians together in the Bible. The book of Ephesians is a terrific book, and I've called this series Deep Stuff. We've looked into some of the foundational truths that are taught in the book of Ephesians, things that if you understand them and believe them and apply them in your life, they will change your life. We have talked, for example, about predestination. We've talked about adoption. And last week, we talked about redemption. So today, I want to go one step deeper with you in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to talk this morning about grace. Now, I love football, but especially college football. I'm not a big fan of the NFL, but I love college football. And one of the reasons I love college football is the pregame traditions that the teams practice before the teams get on the field and start the game. You know what I'm talking about? These pregame things, these, these uh, routines, these ceremonies that a lot of teams go through. For example, Clemson Tigers. I am a little embarrassed about yesterday. I'm very sad about yesterday. I'm still in withdrawal. But Clemson Tigers have a terrific pregame ceremony. In fact, it's called the most exciting 25 seconds in college football. What they do is the team gathers around at the top of this hill and they all put their hands on Howard's Rock, which is in honor of Coach Frank Howard who lived a couple of generations ago. They put their hands on Howard's Rock and run down the hill out onto the field and the fans are going crazy. Or we could think about Florida State. I'm a fan of FSU. Sorry, Gators. But uh, I had two sons that had to go there, so I sort of invested in Florida State. And you know what Chief Seminole, uh, Chief Osceola does, right? As he rides out on his horse, Renegade, before the game begins and plants the flaming spear in the middle of the field and all the fans go wild. Do we have any Auburn Tigers here this morning? Auburn, well, apparently not. <laughs> Auburn Tigers, uh, before the game begins, uh, set, uh, they set free a, a war eagle that soars over the stadium and all of the fans are standing up shouting war eagle at the top of their voices and then as he lands the teams come out and off goes the game so terrific terrific 
college traditions. Well, I say all that to tie it in with Reformation Sunday. How am I going to do that? On October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther did what we saw in that movie, walked up the steps of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and hammered the 95 theses on the castle church door. He did what the teams do around Howard's Rock. He did what Chief Osceola does every game. He He did what War Eagle flying over the stadium did. It amounted to a declaration of war. A declaration of war against the church of the day that had so distorted the theology and teaching of Scripture. Martin Luther and the other reformers gave us five basic rallying cries. Maybe you've heard these. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. These became the themes of the Reformation the Protestant Reformation that took the church to a new day and corrected some of the abuses and some of the distortions of Scripture that were so prevalent back in the 16th century. Well, this morning what I'd like to do is talk with you about the first of those five rally cries. Sola gratia. Grace alone. And I want to say three things to you this morning from God's Word in Ephesians 2. First, what grace is. Second, what grace does. And third, how you can get it. All right, so let's begin with what grace is. Three times in this text, Paul mentions the word grace. So it must be pretty important to him and to you and me. In verse 5, by grace you've been saved. Verse 7, the incomparable riches of his grace. And again in verse 8, it is by grace that you have been saved. What is grace? Grace is God's unearned, undeserved, uncaused kindness. It's unearned, it's undeserved, it's uncaused by anything you and I do. It is the kindness of God sovereignly given to us out of His heart. Sometimes in our church I have defined grace by contrasting it with two other concepts, justice and mercy. And perhaps this will help you even more understand grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. Let's say you're driving down University Boulevard, you're going beyond the speed limit and you're breaking the law. You see the lights behind you and the police officer pulls you to the side of the road. He comes to your window and he says, Sir or Madam, you were, you were breaking the law, you're speeding, here's your ticket. See, that's getting what you deserve. But suppose he doesn't give you a ticket, some in a better mood than that. He gives you mercy He doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you instead a what? A warning. Don't do that again. (laughs) But that's not what you deserve. You deserve justice. He didn't give it to you. But what if he looks at you through your window and he's in in an extremely good mood and he says to you, Sir, you were breaking the law. You were speeding. But here's a $50 gift card to the Outback Steakhouse. (laughs) See, that's getting what you don't deserve. If justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What do sinners deserve from God? Children, you know the answer to this one. What does every sin deserve? 
punishment from God. Every sin, sinners deserve to be eternally separated from God in hell. Justice would be giving us that. But instead, through Christ, God gives us mercy. That is, He doesn't give us what we deserve. He lets us off the hook. He forgives our sins. He takes them away. But the good news of grace is that God does more than simply give us mercy. He does more than simply let us off the hook. He gives us justifying grace. He gives us righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit's filling. He gives us a church. He gives us the Word of God. He gives us His daily presence. He gives us the promise of one day new bodies, a new earth, eternal life being spent with Him. All that, you see, is getting what we don't deserve. All that is grace, undeserved, unearned kindness. Second question we wanted to answer is, what does grace do? What does grace do? Well, to answer that question, we need to park at verses 1 through 4. That's a really important part of this passage. Those verses describe the condition of the person who is outside of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 4. They describe the unbeliever. And Paul says in these opening verses of chapter 2, That before you come to Jesus Christ, you're in big trouble. Before you come to Christ, you have huge problems. And you and I need to understand what those problems are. Three problems. First of all, before you come to Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, as for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul doesn't say you were sick. Doesn't say you were handicapped. He doesn't say you were dysfunctional. He says you were dead. Absolutely dead. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine that you need a new toaster. So you go to uh, Target and you buy a new toaster. The box looks very nice and new. You bring it home. You take it out of the box. You plug it in. You get out your bagel and slice it, put the bagel in the toaster, and push the lever. And nothing happens. It's dead. There's no heat. There's no light. You figure, oh, man, I got a dud. Put it back in the box. You take it back to Target. You got your receipt. You get a new toaster just like that one. You bring it home, open the box, put it on the counter, plug it in, put your bagel in, push the lever. Nothing happens. What? Oh, man, i got to go back again, you say. So you take it back. Let's suppose you take back toaster after toaster after toaster. You've got the patience of Job. You know there's got to be a good toaster over there at Target someplace. So again and again you take it back. Again and again you bring it home, plug it in, put the bagel in there, nothing. No life. It's totally dead. That is the human condition. You remember what God told Adam in the Garden of Eden? He said, there's this forbidden tree, forbidden fruit. In the day that you eat that fruit, you will die. And he meant not only that you will one day die physically, but he meant in the moment you obey me, you will die spiritually. And sure enough, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed God. And every single human being born into this world since that day has been born a broken toaster. 
No spiritual heat. No light. Speak the gospel into those ears and it's like plugging a dead toaster into the wall. The power's there, but there's no response. We're sons of Adam and we're daughters of Eve. Sinners by birth as well as by choice. So that's our first problem. We're dead in sin before we come to Christ. Second problem is that when we're outside of Jesus, we are in bondage or slavery to sin. Verse 2 says, You followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's another way, by the way, of talking about Satan or the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And verse 3 says that you gratified the cravings of your sinful nature and followed, followed its desires and its thoughts. So the view of human beings in that, those two verses is that we cannot but sin before we come to faith in Christ. We're slaves. Now that may seem to you to be an overly pessimistic view of human nature. And in fact, some of you might even look back into your past and, and say to me, but, but wait a second, Mike, I think that I've always loved the Lord. I've basically been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home and I don't remember a time when I was just simply living for the world. Well, good. I mean, ideally, that's what we should all say. Nevertheless, what Paul says here about the human condition is true of every single one of us at some point in our lives. Until you turn from sin and trust in Christ and become his follower, you are a slave. Whether you're three years old or 33 or 103, whenever the time of, of faith comes in your life, before that time you were a slave. You know, last week if you were here, I talked about some of the idols in our lives that we worship. Things like success and beauty and intelligence and reputation and, and family and money and so on. Well, until Christ sets you free, those are the things that are dominating your life. One or more of them. You look for love in all the wrong places. You try and try and try to find something besides God who will make you happy. That's what I'm talking about when I say that you were a slave to sin. Even people, even people who on the outside look like a nice new toaster, even people who are moral and religious can be, in fact, slaves of sin. Have you ever seen the movie Legends of the Fall? Uh, you ladies probably love that movie because you've got Aidan Quinn, who is Albert, or Alfred, sorry, and you have every woman's heart throb, Brad Pitt, playing Tristan. And Alfred is the good boy. He is the guy who stays home. He cares for his sick father. He even becomes a U.S. senator later on. He's the good boy. The problem with the good boy was that he cannot stand the way that his father loves his younger brother Tristan. Alfred hates his brother Tristan. He is locked in hatred, even though on the outside, Alfred's the good boy. Tristan is the bad boy. But here's the point. Both Alfred and Tristan are alike in this one way. They're both in bondage. And if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Alfred is in bondage to his jealousy and to his rule-keeping. Tristan, on the other hand, 
is in bondage to his self-indulgent lifestyle and his rule-breaking. Both are slaves. And every single human being and every one of you sitting in this room this morning is now or at one time was either an Alfred or a Tristan. Me, I was an Alfred. I was a good boy. Stayed out of trouble, moral, upright, etc. But you know what? On the inside, I was a slave to my flesh, to my will, to contempt and pride. You just didn't know it when you looked at me on the outside of the box. Dead in sin. Spiritual bondage. And then we have a third problem before we come to Christ. Paul says the third problem is that we are under the condemning judgment of God. Look at verse 3. The second half of the verse says that like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now that's a... That's a positive message, isn't it? (laughs) Objects of wrath. There could be no attribute of God more unpopular with American culture today than that. Ask the average American what he or she knows about God and they're bound to say, well, God is love. And that's true. Infinitely so. God is love But the Bible teaches that wrath is also an attribute of God. What is wrath? It's God's hatred of sin. His hostility toward all that is evil. His refusal to compromise one iota with it. His purpose to one day punish all sin and all unrepentant sinners in hell forever. That's His wrath. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. So I've got a question for you. How seriously do you take that concept? The wrath of God is an important part of the gospel. You know, perhaps if you and I talked and thought more about the wrath of God, we would play around less with some of the sins in our lives. Maybe if we thought about the wrath of God more frequently, we would be more humble and repentant toward one another and toward God. Maybe if we thought and pondered about the wrath of God more frequently, we would be more urgently about the task of sharing our faith with people who are yet outside Christ. Well, do you see the problem? The problem is that we've got this threefold situation. We are born dead in sin, slaves to sin, and under the condemning wrath of God. But now you're ready to understand grace. Look at verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6. Now that we've heard the bad news. Now that we've seen the plight that we're in. Verse 4 starts off with two little words. And you miss it if all you have is the New International Version that we usually read from here. You miss this, but it's really precious. Verse 4 starts off with the words, but God. The NIV sort of moves some words around. But the Greek says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. 
It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now notice here what God's unearned, undeserved, uncaused favor or kindness does. It reverses the curse we were under. It solves the problem, the mess that we were in. It fixes the toaster. Verse 1 said that you and I were dead in sin. But look at verse 5. It says that because of His grace, God made you alive with Christ. He has given you the new birth. He's given you a new start, a new heart to take the place of your old sinful, self-centered heart. Secondly, Verses 2 and 3 said that you were a spiritual slave. You were in bondage to sin. But verse 6 says that you're no longer a slave. You've been raised up with Christ, freed from the shackles of sin and death, filled with the Holy Spirit, and empowered and able to live for the glory of God. Third, remember verse 3, it said that you were under God's wrath. But verse 6 says that God has seated you with Christ in heavenly places. Your status now is not that of a condemned criminal. You are, if you're a believer in Christ, a prince or a princess. And you know what Jesus is sitting on? Is a what? A throne. You've been seated with Him. You're sitting on a throne, spiritually, positionally. That's what God thinks of you. You're a prince or a princess in His eyes. Listen again to the three verbs. Made alive with Christ raised up with Christ, and seated in heaven with Christ. It's all because of Jesus. And, and, and we talked about this last week. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are so united to Him, so tightly connected to Him, that everything Jesus has is yours. Everything Jesus has done or experienced, you've done and experienced in Him. Why would God do that? Why would God do such a thing? Well, verse 7 says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you are trophies of God's grace. You are, according to verse 10, and this is meant positively, a piece of work. You are his masterpiece. You are his work of art. God is so proud to call you His own. He loves you unimaginably. He wants to show you how much He delights in you and enjoys you as His son or His daughter so that you can live the life that He calls you to live. You are alive. You're not dead. You are free. You're not a slave. You are cherished and empowered. You're not condemned. In short, in verses 5 and 8, Paul says you've been saved by grace. Sola gratia. The first cry of the Protestant Reformation. So we've seen what grace is. We've seen what it does. Now the question is, how do you get it if you don't have it? How do you get grace? This saving grace if you've never experienced it? Well, look at verse 8 and here's the answer. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Recently, my wife Susie and I went to see our grandchildren and we brought them presents. Now, you know why grandparents bring presents to their grandkids. They want them to adore them and love them for the rest of their lives. Yes, we buy their affection. 
<laughs> no, we, we brought our grandkids some presents and we, we laid them out to them. Now, is this what grandparents do? Do they say, grandkids, I've got some presents for you, but before I give them to you, I want to see how well you're riding your bike these days. Have you gotten better? You, you don't fall anymore, do you? Okay, let me see you ride your bike and then after that I'll decide if I've got it within me to give you these gifts. No, that's ridiculous. Do we say... Grandchildren, I've got some presents for you, but before we give them to you, I want to see how well you're reading nowadays. No, that's not what grandparents do. We gave our grandkids presents because we already loved them. They didn't have to do a thing. All they had to do was receive. All they had to do was received. Do you want to hear some good news this morning? You do not get God's saving grace by being holy and trying to be good and making sure you don't make any more mistakes. You do not get God's love that way. You don't get God's saving grace and love by giving to charity, by coming to church, by recycling your cans and plastics, by loving old ladies by giving money to our church. You don't do it. You don't get God's grace by coming to our Saturday of service last weekend. You don't do it by working in our nursery. All those things are very good, and I would love for you to do them all. But that's not what gives you saving grace. God doesn't love you because of good works you do. God loves you and saves you because of the good work Jesus did on the cross for you. That's it. God loves you because of Jesus. There's no and at the end of that sentence. There's no but at the end of that sentence. There's no if at the end of that sentence. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what the Reformation was all about. And ironically, that's what got Martin Luther condemned as a heretic. So the way to get God's saving grace is this. Turn away from your works and receive Jesus Christ by faith as a gift. Faith is simply helpless trust. That's what it is. It's helpless trust that Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave covered your sins and makes you alive and righteous and accepted by God. Have you said yes to Jesus' gift? Have you? You should be able to say yes or no to that. There's no maybe. Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you opened your hand and received God's gift of grace? Because He's offering it to you right now. Let's pray. And I wonder if I could ask of you, while your heads are bowed, if you've never said yes to Jesus, would you like to today? Maybe the Holy Spirit's been working in your heart as we've been talking. Maybe the, maybe the thought of being dead in sin and being a slave to sin and looking for love in all the wrong places has really reminded you that that's where you are. And you need a new start. You need a new life, a new heart. You don't just need a better way to live or a three-step answer to your dysfunction. You need a new heart. So Jesus could be very well speaking to you right now through, through His Word and saying, now's the time. 
You've waited long enough. So if you would like to ask Christ to be your Savior, maybe my words can become a prayer. You can just say it silently in your own heart or mumble it under your breath or whisper it, whatever you feel comfortable doing. But I'd like to lead you in prayer if you've never said yes to Jesus. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I need a new start. I need a new life, a new beginning. I ask you to take my sins away and make me your child. I want to become your follower. Thank you that you love me because of Jesus. Not because of the good or bad things I've done, but because of Jesus and what he's done for me. So I receive you now. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your love. I receive your death on the cross and your resurrection. And I ask you to help me follow you the rest of my life. Lord, thank you that you love to forgive people like us who have made a wreck of our lives. Thank you that you come to save dead people, slaves, and criminals and make them kings and queens and sons and daughters and princes and princesses. And so, Lord, we receive you now. We give you thanks for your grace. Help us who know about grace begin again to treat each other with grace and live out of grace every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.